0: Take your Bibles, if you would please, and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 19, verses 13 through 30, is where we're going to turn our attention this morning. We believe that this book is God's inherent, uh, inerrant, inspired word, and uh, we place ourselves under its authority by reading it carefully and seeking to, uh, I try to explain it, and you listen carefully uh, because we submit to the authority of our Lord Jesus, and we do so in his word now, from Matthew chapter 19, verses 13 through 30. Then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them, but the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When he placed his hands on them, he went on from there. Just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what, my, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Uh, Which ones? He inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept. The young man said, what do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth, many possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples went, oh, that's not what it says. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and they asked, oh, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Peter answered him, we've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or fields, for my sake will receive a hundred times as much, and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Last month, we were uh, while we were visiting Buffalo, uh, we spent a day at the Buffalo Museum of Science. And in the wing that was dedicated to different cultures, they had on display a piece of religious art made by Tibetan Buddhist monks called the mandala. And there is the picture of the mandala in the Buffalo Museum of Science there with a guide. She's in a video to describe it. You can see it's a round, flat piece of art. Here's a closer picture of it. And it is made entirely out of sand. It's not paint. It's not clay. There's no wood. It is entirely made out of sand. If you were able to stand over and look at it more closely, you would notice shading. There's darker green parts and lighter green parts, and it, it shades and fades. The colors do at certain spots, and you would also notice if, if you were able to see it closer, there's things that look like dots along the lines. It's, it's three-dimensional. It's not. It's not a flat piece of Religious art. It's a mandala. This mandala was made in 1991 by four uh, Buddhist monks. It took them four weeks to do it. This is a model. It's a common, from what I understand, um, uh, a, a picture, common recreation they make in mandalas uh, of the home of the god Chenrezig. Mandalas have a particular purpose and a particular lifespan. You make them out of sand. You, build, you spend uh, days, weeks making them, and then ritually, when you're finished, you destroy it. It's made of sand, it, and it's meant to be temporary. Now, this one has been around since 1991, and the reason it is uh, still here is because it's unfinished. There's a portion of it that's not finished. If they had finished it, according to conviction, they would have destroyed it. And the design of this being temporary, this art being temporary, is it's a symbol for us that life in this world is temporary. Here's one place, there's not many, but here's one place where a Christian worldview and a Buddhist worldview overlap. There are elements in this world that are temporary. And the Bible warns us about them all the time. In the book of Psalms, Psalm 90, it says, your life is temporary, Teach us to number our days because you're not going to be here forever. This life is temporary and it passes very quickly. In Proverbs 31, uh, the author of Proverbs tells us that beauty is fleeting. There are characteristics that both men and women uh, can cultivate the fear of the Lord, and it endures. It has a, an eternal loveliness to it. But beauty, physical beauty, passes, it's fleeting. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the apostle Paul tells us that for believers, for followers of Jesus, suffering in this world is limited, it's temporary. And the Bible tells us about this all the time to warn us, don't build your life on temporary things. Don't build your life, uh, don't set your hopes hopes and dreams on things that are going to die with you. And this passage, this may be a warning to you about wealth. This is a conversation, a pretty well-known conversation, most of this passage is, uh, about an encounter between a rich man who asked Jesus a very important question about eternal life and the Lord Jesus himself. And, and this rich man is, is um, the main character, but I think the main theme of this passage, and I hope to show that to you this morning, is the goodness, the generosity of God. Um, Back in Matthew chapter 16, um, Jesus has introduced the church. He talked about the church, this new community that he's going to form of his people. And they're going to gather together. They're going to assemble together. That's what uh, the word church means, assembly, an assembly of Jesus' people. And then in Matthew chapter 18, he gives a lesson for us about how we're supposed to interact with one another, Uh, the humility, the forgiveness, uh, the kindness that we're to express uh, to one another. And now, following that lesson, what Matthew does, this is typical of his style, he records conversations that Jesus had, parables that Jesus told that kind of reflect back on those themes. And in this passage, Jesus, uh, Matthew, um, Jesus wants us to know, and Matthew records this for us, uh, about the goodness of God and how the generosity of God shapes us, how it forms us as his people. My goal is, this morning, I want to show you four ways in which the generosity of God shapes how we interact with one another. Uh, Maybe you can think about it like this. Some of you have been to a family reunion. Have you been to a family reunion this summer? Maybe you had one. You gather together with all of your relatives, and uh, you can trace it back, that big crowd that's there. You can trace it back, perhaps, to one couple, grandma and grandpa, or great-grandma and great-grandpa, and and, in their healthy marriage, Lord willing... Uh, the, their healthy marriage produced all these children and then produced grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And this whole mass of people is the overflow of the love of that one couple. And we, the, the members of the body of Christ here, we are the overflow of the generosity of God, the kindness, the goodness, the grace and mercy of God. Let's talk about how the generosity of God shapes Jesus' people. First of all, it changes our expectations about who belongs. It changes our expectations about who belongs in Jesus' people. At the end of this passage, verse 30, and in chapter 20, verse 16, Jesus uses this phrase twice to uh, summarize what he's teaching. Verse 30 says, many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. And then look over at chapter 20, verse 16, which we'll come to in a few weeks. So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Those Jesus is telling us, those we often elevate in our culture, those we give prominent positions, often are those who will be at the back of the line in the kingdom of heaven. The first will be last, and the last will be first. There's a scene in the miniseries The Crown where King George is explaining to his daughter, the young Princess Elizabeth, who will one day become Queen Elizabeth. He teaches her, explains to her how he handles the daily red box that comes from the Prime Minister's office. In Great Britain, every day the Prime Minister's office prepares a, a stack of documents puts them in a special red box, and sends it over to the palace. And it's the sovereign's job as head of state to review those papers. Some of them uh, the king or queen has to sign, uh, read, review, comment on. It's a part of the role uh, Her Majesty plays in uh, the government of Great Britain. And King George explained to Princess Elizabeth what he does with his red box when it comes. Every day, every day it comes, he sits on his desk, He reaches in, and he takes the pile of papers, and he turns it upside down. And he says, I start working from what was at the bottom of the box. That's where I start. He says, you know why? Because the prime minister's office puts at the bottom of the box the things they don't really want me to see. The things that are going to be controversial, the things that are going to be hard, the things that I, that I might have an opinion on or might have a role in, they put them at the bottom of the box because they're hoping that by the time I work my way through all the inconsequential stuff, I'll be too tired or distracted to pay attention to what's at the bottom. So I always start at the bottom. The last will be first and the first will be last. Who's going to be preeminent in the kingdom of God? It's probably, who are going to be the heroes in the kingdom of heaven? It's probably some saint you've never heard of. Some saint doesn't have any social media followers, no book deals, has never written a number one song, uh, never fills a stadium to speak. Someone, you have no idea who they are. God sends his most precious children into obscure places. He has to because most of us wouldn't be able to handle the obscurity. But he sends some of his most precious children into obscure places. The first should be last and the last should be first. Proof. Here's proof. Exhibit A in this argument that Jesus makes about our expectations, about who belongs little children, little children. Verses 13 through 15, people bring their little children to Jesus. Jesus loves kids. He talks to kids. He prays with kids. He watches kids play. Jesus loves kids. It's interesting, other ancient biographies of heroes, when they tell the story of Caesar or they tell the story of other great heroes, they don't emphasize how much they uh, loved children, but Jesus loves kids. I don't know who said it, but it's true. You should never trust anybody who dislikes children or puppies. Jesus loves kids, and they bring to him little children. We don't know how old they are. The word children is a little obscure. It could could be arranged, but the fact that they're brought to him seems to indicate that they're little ones, ones who can't walk uh, yet. Uh, And and they bring to Jesus, in keeping with the Jewish tradition of the day, especially on the Day of Atonement, Jews would bring their children to scribes or priests, uh, uh, rabbis, and ask the rabbis to bless them. And they're bringing their little children to Jesus to pray for them. And disciples object. The text says, the disciples rebuked them. Now, who's the them in the passage? One hopes it's the parents. One hopes that Peter is not up there swatting away toddlers. I mean, one hopes, right? He's got to have a little bit of sense, right? Uh, Jesus, though, swats the disciples. Not literally. He says, let the little children come to me. Why? Because... The kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these, to people like children. The kingdom of heaven is for people just like children, who have childlike faith, dependent people, unable people, helpless, passive, weak, trusting people. Um, Last week, the Eglies were here with us. The Friday before they were here, I had breakfast with the Egley family downtown, and I was sitting next to their second son, uh, Elias. He's three and a half, and we were talking, and I, I asked him, uh, we talked about how old everybody was, and I said, uh, uh, three and a half, uh, Judah is five, maybe almost six, and I said, oh, that's great, because I'm seven. And Elias looked at me a little bit... He kind of giggled a little bit, and he said, is that right? Are you really seven? I said, no, I'm nine. I was just teasing. <laughs> I'm not seven. Little children, they, they, they listen. They're, they're interested. They're curious. They're, uh, uh, they have open ears and tender hearts, and the kingdom of heaven is for people like that. You can't be obstinate and proud and confident and you can't be convinced of your own sufficiency and enter the kingdom of heaven flip over with me just for a minute to matthew chapter 18 look what it says matthew chapter 18 verse 1 uh, jesus is talking about children again here at that time the disciples came to jesus and asked who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven who are the heroes in the kingdom of heaven he called verse 2 a little child to him and placed the child among them and he said Truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. The first will be last, and the last will be first. Exhibit A, little children. Exhibit B, a rich young man. Here he comes. This is one of the most of uh, uh, familiar encounters that Jesus has in the Gospels. Matthew very simply introduces it by saying a man, just then a man came up to Jesus. Luke tells us that he's a ruler. Matthew will later tell us that he's young. And Mark joins in with Matthew and Luke by saying he's rich. So we give this man the title, the rich young ruler. And he has a great question for Jesus. He says, uh, he has the question about eternal life. How can I be sure that I have eternal life? Uh, This man has been taught by the Bible, and the Bible's teaching that this life is not all there is, that when you die, there is eternity for you to face, and it will either be an eternal blessedness, a a source of eternal life and gladness and joy, or it will be eternal death, eternal wrath, eternal judgment. And this man wants to know, he wants assurance from Jesus about eternal life, and But his question, he asks his question in the problematic way. He says, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Now, how, how would you answer that question? How have you been taught in Sunday school to teach? Or if one of your Awana clubbers asked you that question, what must I do to get eternal life? You'd probably be surprised by Jesus' answer. He wants to know what he needs to do. He's reflecting a very Jewish perspective. Uh, many Jews of the day uh, thought about uh, the eternity and, and it, a happy, eternal happiness is for people who are good. So what good things must I do to earn my eternal happiness? It's actually not just a Jewish perspective and it's not just an ancient perspective. It's what most people believe consistently. They take polls. There's statistics to back this up. They ask most Americans, do you believe in heaven and hell? Yes, I do. And how do you know you're going to heaven? Well, I'm a good person. I do good things. Uh, we don't fault people for that because there's this innate sense of justice in their hearts that God put there that, that rightly says Good people deserve good things, and bad people deserve bad things. There's a sense in which there's that is a reflection of justice. But um, Jesus doesn't answer the way I would have answered. I, I, I might have said, you can't do anything. You can't do anything to get eternal life. Your problem is what you have done. Your doing is what has brought you condemnation from God. What you do is why you deserve God's wrath because of your rebellion against him. This is not a question of do. You're asking the wrong question when you say, what must I do to get eternal life? That's not what Jesus does. That's not what Jesus says. Actually, his response raises a second way that the generosity of God forms this new community. Here's a second way it does. Secondly, it focuses our attention on the goodness of God. God in his kindness tells us about his own goodness. Jesus responds, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. That's puzzling. What he's trying to do, I think, is he's... He's unveiling one of the man's problems. One of this man's problems is that he is thinking about the wrong sort of goodness. He's spending his time thinking about his goodness, and he should be thinking about God's goodness. This is the difference between Christianity and the other major faiths of the world. The other major faiths of the world want to talk about how we can be good to reach up to God. Christianity is the good news about what God has done to reach down to us. You're not a Christian because you're good enough. When you come to join the church and you have your interview before the elders, the elders are not looking to see how good you are. They're not interested in you making a case for your goodness. They want to hear from you and know from you that you are aware and trusting in God's goodness, not your own goodness. Our weekly meetings, when we gather together on Sunday mornings, it's not a celebration of our goodness. We don't come to congratulate ourselves that we're better than other people. Nor actually is it just a time of gathering when we gather to mourn over our failures. We gather together to celebrate the goodness, the generosity, the kindness of God. If you spend all your time thinking about your goodness, your goodness... You will either spend your time in pride and self-righteousness because of how good you are, or you'll spend your time in despair because of your failures. I know many followers of Jesus who spend their lives within their souls just this this high-pitched whining sound of shame. It's like the, the hum that constantly runs through their minds of guilt and shame and how they don't measure up, and how God must not be very pleased with them, and how they fail. <coughs> Excuse me. I have a printer at home. It's an HP Envy printer, and I don't like it at all. I bought it, it was an update. It's supposed to be in a new and improved version of this printer, and the problem with my printer is that the power cord is of insufficient... It's, it's not quite right so that if uh, the screen is, never, is, is not on, on my printer, if the screen goes off, it's timed, it's supposed to go off, when it goes off, my printer emits a very high-pitched whine sound, eee, like that, electric whir sound. Um, you only notice it if you're being quiet, if there's no other noise in, in the room, uh, or no other people, no other noise, you're not moving around, you can hear it, so it's it's just a lovely accompaniment. If you sit in my office and try to read or pray, it's awesome, this printer. It's the worst. Uh, some of you, that's the way it is with shame and guilt in your life. You just, you just have, there's this constant whining sound of accusation and condemnation and despair because you don't measure up. Brothers and sisters, God knows you don't measure up. He directs you to his goodness, his generosity, what he has done for us in the Lord Jesus. Thinking about that, focusing on God's goodness cultivates joy. And some of you need constant reminders of that. Now, notice how Jesus tries to direct this man's attention away from his insufficient goodness. He says to him, uh, if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. And the guy says, which ones? And again, I wasn't there. If I had been there, I might have said all of them, right? Uh, Jesus, wise, patiently. Well, that's not what Jesus says, but I think that uh, the man is asking this question because, some of you know this, you read the rest of the Gospels, there was a debate in Jesus' day about which one of the commandments was the greatest. And they asked Jesus that question. Which is the greatest one? Which is the greatest one? And this guy, maybe he's thinking, keep the commandments. Okay, which one? Which ones are the most important commandments? Or maybe he is looking for Jesus to give him some sort of quest. You know, he, he's a pretty good guy. He thinks he's a pretty good guy. He's, he, well, he's going to say he's kept the commandments. It's pretty good. But there's still this sense in him that he needs something else. He's looking for, you know, that extra 10% that's going to give him the confidence that he needs to know he has eternal life. And maybe he came to Jesus because he's looking for Jesus to give him a quest, some sort of grand gesture that he can do, some sort of great deed, heroic deed that he can do that will give him the assurance that he has eternal life. So maybe that's what's prompting him to say, which ones? And Jesus doesn't give him the dope slap that he deserves. Instead, Jesus says, "See, quotes some of the Ten Commandments. The the second half of the Ten Commandments, the one that uh, focus our attention on how we treat one another. Um, Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, honor your father and mother. And he says, I got those all. I've kept all of those. Again, I wasn't there. I might have said, really? Let's go get your mother, Right? Let's bring your mother in here and see if you've really kept all the commandments. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus makes one more demand of him and everything falls apart. And that demand reveals to us a third way that the generosity of God forms our, com- uh, our community. What else does it do? Third, it reveals the way we fall short. It reveals the way we fall short. Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, Go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. Now how closely are these commands related? Go sell your possessions and give to the poor and come follow me. I think they should be pretty closely related. Go sell your possessions and give to the poor so you then can come follow me. In other words, your possessions are keeping you from following me. I Don't think the man sees that. The text says... Verse 22, when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had many possessions. He had great wealth. Why is this man sad? I don't think he's sad for the same reason that I'm sad for him. I'll tell you why I'm sad for him in a minute, but I I think he's sad because he was hoping that Jesus would give him the quest, Jesus would give him the the rules, the extra rules he needed to follow that would give him this last bit of assurance that he's got eternal life. Jesus has disappointed him. I guess you don't have the answers like I hope you did. I hoped you had the answers. I hoped you would give me that boost that I need, but apparently not. You can't even do that. I'm sad for him because it's clear that he loves his money more than he realizes, He doesn't know it's a problem he doesn't have the sense he's so blinded by his money he had he did he didn't it seems like he you would say "Hmm, do i want my money do i want eternal life which one do i want which one do i want and and i don't think he has the sense to even do that he doesn't realize how blind his money is making him he doesn't realize what his money is costing him his many possessions He's not going to enter the kingdom. He's not going to be saved. He's not going to have eternal life. Jesus held up a mirror to him, showing him what he really loves, and uh, he refused to look into it and see. And Jesus speaks about the blindness that this man has in a way that shocks the disciples. Jesus knew they were going to take this news hard, so he said it twice and very solemnly. Verse 23, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. You're supposed to chuckle at that. <laughs> it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples, what? That's not, that's not what we think about money. Come on, really? Then it, if the rich aren't eligible for heaven, for eternal life, to be saved. Who then can be saved? See, they thought, and so did this man, they thought that your financial prosperity was a sign of your spiritual prosperity. After all, if God doesn't approve of your heart, why would he fill your wallet with money? Your financial prosperity is a sign of spiritual prosperity. That's what they believed, that if you were spiritually healthy, you'd have a healthy portfolio too. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Actually, the opposite problem is at work here. Money can blind you to the depth of your spiritual need. Jesus has led led this man to that point where he should be able to see that truth in him, and he does not. I wonder if you see that truth in yourself. Now, think carefully about this. Jesus makes this demand of this man, and it's a demand he does not make of uh, everybody that he talks to. He didn't make this demand of Zacchaeus. He didn't make this demand of Nicodemus. This is not a demand that Jesus makes of everybody. This is tailored for him, part of his strategy to help this man cultivate, cultivate in him some awareness of his need. Now, at the same time, you should realize if you're greatly relieved by the fact that Jesus doesn't touch the money of everyone he speaks to, if you're greatly relieved by that, maybe you need to hear him say that. Because following Jesus changes your attitude toward money. It's easy to mistake financial prosperity for spiritual health. I mean, think it's, it's hard for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Every now and then I pass them, and every now and then it draws my attention in billboards that advertise the lottery. Sometimes the Powerball lottery, which I think is a multi-state lottery, will we'll get up into the high millions, $250 million and $224 million, and they'll advertise, go buy a Powerball lottery ticket. And because I'm human and I'm bored in my car, I see that billboard and I think to myself, man, what I would, couldn't do with $224 million. I could do a lot of stuff with $224 million. I'd pay off the mortgage to our church if I had two million. I'd pay off your mortgage if I had $224 million. I just think, and I, I think about the things that I could do with my kids and the things that I could give them and the places I could take them and the experiences I could show them. And then sometimes when my mind goes too fast and too far down that road, the Holy Spirit in his kindness says, why would you curse your children with all that money? Why? Why would you put something in them put something in front of them that makes it hard for them to see the kingdom of heaven and their spiritual need? Why would you put that obstacle? Why would you want, why would you wish and be envious of people who have that money? Why would you want to put that obstacle in their way? It's hard. It's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, you should realize that this, this... Evaluation applies to more than just money. We human beings are are capable of putting all kinds of blinders on. Sometimes some of you might have athletic gifts that obscure your need, or artistic gifts. Some of you have physical beauty, or social status, or uh, comfort, or a happy life and a happy home with happy children. So why why do I need a savior? I've got, I got everything I need. And Jesus, in his kindness, tells this man, shows this man, makes a demand of this man that reveals to him his true spiritual condition. He doesn't realize that his money is functioning in his life as a blinder, that his money is covering over himself, covering over his true spiritual condition. The Bible tells us that human beings do this all the time and in various ways, and it started way back at the beginning. Adam and Eve, our first parents, when they sinned, they realized The Bible says they were naked and they were ashamed. They realized their shame because of their sin and their guilt, and they covered it over with fig leaves, a fig leaf skirt. This man does not have a skirt made of fig leaves. He's got a skirt made of dollar bills covering over his spiritual condition. Jesus in his kindness tells him, and the Bible in its kindness tells us that there is only one covering that will do for us to cover over our sin, and that's the Lord Jesus. He who died on the cross for our sins in our place, paying the penalty we owe, and rose again and ascended into heaven and gives life and forgiveness to all who will receive it. Some of you, some of you live your life for the coverings that you put over your life. You're not being honest with yourself. You're not being honest with others. And it is obscuring you from seeing your true spiritual condition and reaching out to the Lord Jesus that you might find forgiveness, real, rich forgiveness in his name. Eternal life is not a, gift, a, a, not a, not a reward to be earned. It's a gift to be received by faith. God in his kindness and his generosity reveals to us the way we fall short. Here's number four on my list of what the generosity of God does. It, it teaches us to put sacrifice in its place. It teaches us to put sacrifice in its place. Peter hears this conversation, and he says to Jesus, Hey, we've left everything. We did what you told that guy to do. Uh, um, what, is, what, well, what would there be for us? He had mentioned to the man... You'll have treasure in heaven. Peter says, what's in it for us? There's various debates in the commentaries about, about Peter's motives here. Is he asking a clarifying question? Is he, asking, is he asking a self-interested question? Many people look at this and say, well, that Peter, he's just in it for the rewards. Shouldn't be in it for the rewards. I'm not sure Jesus would think that because uh, if you're in it for his rewards, Jesus seems to think that's okay. If you're living your life to earn Jesus, uh, to, to uh, um, um, satisfy to bring pleasure to jesus jesus seems to think that's okay well he answers his question uh he says verse 28 and matthew is more detailed at this point in time than mark or luke matthew will talk about the end times later we'll get to that in 24 and 25 but look he says truly i tell you that the renewal of all things when the son of man sits on his glorious throne may that happen soon You who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. There's going to be a day coming. Jesus will be enthroned. The disciples will be enthroned around him. The nation of Israel will be there in this vision that Jesus has of the end times. And and you're going to be judging them, he says to the disciples, to Peter and the disciples. I'm not sure judging if the word here means... Judging like a one-time day in court judging? Or is he talking judging in the terms of ruling? You're going to rule for an extended period of time over the 12 tribes. I'm not sure which it is. The language is not that clear. This is not the passage I would answer that question from. But then, in verse 29, he expands. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hunt. Well, I shouldn't pass over that so fast. For my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. The promise here is for 100 times as much. Don't do the math. It won't work because what are you going to do with a hundred mothers? Don't take the math literally here. What are you going to do with a hundred fathers? About a hundred children. We can't all be the Harrisons. I mean, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? No, no, no. the point is not not multiplying what you've sacrificed by 100. Don't do the math. The point is the rewards are going to be so lavish that they're going to make the sacrifices that you have made seem small and insignificant by comparison. That's how good God is. That's how generous he is. Everything that you have given up is going to be a small sacrifice in comparison. They're not small sacrifices. They're not small things. Brothers, sisters, father, mother, wife, children. They're not small things, but in comparison, in comparison, they're small. I'm watching the Olympics clips here and there. Are you watching the Olympics? I like, I I, I see the scenes where those uh, participants in judged sports, you know, gymnastics, diving. That they they do uh, um, recaps of those events, and they, they put the camera right on the last contestant. This is the this is the gold medal winning uh, dive. This is his chance, her chance to win the gold medal and they, and, and they dive and then they put the camera on them and, and while they're waiting for the scores to come up on the board to see have I won a gold medal and, and, and you get, they post it, there's cheering and the person who wins the gold medal bursts into tears and hugs the coach and oh, it's just, it's a wonderful moment, right? I'd like to talk to that person 30 years from now. I wanna find some 50-year-old who won a gold medal at the 1992 Olympics. And I wanna to say to them, was it worth it? Was, was all that sacrifice you did as a, ch- as a child, all that time you spent in the gym or in the pool, all that time, was it worth it for that gold medal that you won in 1992? I like to ask them that question and I wonder what they would say. There is not a follower of Jesus in all of history who on that day when the Lord Jesus sits on his glorious throne will look back at his life or her life and anything that they've given up and said, man, that wasn't quite worth it. Because the goodness of God, the generosity of God, he's so lavish. You can't make a dollar evaluation of that because all of your evaluations and all of your spreadsheets will be washed away by the lavish goodness of God. How clearly do you see that, I wonder? Hudson Taylor was a missionary. He served in China. He was born in 1832 and died in 1905. And look what he said about sacrifices. He led a hard life at certain points in time. Here he is. You can tell he led a hard life by that grim face. It would be helpful if the saints of old would have smiled in their old pictures. It would make what they said about Jesus seem believable, right? So here is this grim-faced, very happy in Jesus, Hudson Taylor. Look what He said, I never succeeded in making a sacrifice for God. Every time I gave up anything for God, I found so much blessing that I felt myself better off rather than worse off for having given up whatever it was. I wonder if you've figured that out yet. It's okay if you're still trying to figure that out. The Apostle Paul expected that you as a follower of Jesus would need time to figure that out, to process that to work that out. I know that because he said in Ephesians 1 verses 18 and 19 that he was praying for the Ephesians and he said, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know the hope to which he's called you. Sure, you're a follower of Jesus, but you need even more more enlightenment from God to know the hope, to know how great it's going to be on that day when Jesus sits on his glorious throne. And I pray that your eyes would be opened so that you'd be enlightened to know that hope to which he's called you. A long, uh, several years ago, uh, actually I think on the first vacation I ever took when I was a pastor of this church, Kathy and I went to visit our relatives in western New York. And then we, uh, for a couple of days, I I think we stayed two nights, we went to Niagara Falls, Canada. Not that far away from home, but we were, uh, from our parents' house, we were just trying to get away for a little bit. So we went to Niagara Falls, Canada. It had been a while since we went to Niagara Falls, Canada, but we remember in the times that we visited many years ago, uh, a place called Maple Leaf Village, it was a tourist sort of place. Maple Leaf Village had within it an indoor amusement park. It was kind of down uh, below, sea level, uh, below the level of the street. It was this big amusement park inside Maple Leaf Village. And, and uh, we were looking for it. We walked all over the place trying to find where it was. And then we, we realized it should be right here. But right here, there was a massive casino and hotel. They tore down Maple Leaf Village. And put a casino. There we stood in Niagara Falls, Canada, outside this casino. Uh, Baptist pastors and their wives are not known for their frequent visits to casinos. If you're ever in a casino and there's an, an emergency and you say, is there a doctor? There may very well be a doctor who will come and help you. If you're in a casino and there's an emergency... Why would you ever need one of these people in an emergency? But if there's an emergency and you say, is there a Baptist pastor in the room? No one will step forward because A, they're probably not there. And B, if they are, they're not going to admit that they're a Baptist pastor in a casino. But we were in Canada and all y'all were in Lancaster County. So we went inside. Check it out. Let's go see what's in this casino. If we got a chance, let's go. They're depressing places. Uh, there's no windows in a casino. You know, there's no, reason, uh, no windows in a casino for two reasons. One, so you can't see the uh, sunset or sunrise, so you don't know what time it is. And the other reason there's no windows in a casino is because you might actually look outside and see a blue sky and a tree and realize that there's something better for you to do with your time, namely go look at a tree or the blue sky. All those people in the casino, putting money in machines, pulling levers hitting buttons, sliding their credit card in, hoping desperately that the right combination will come up or something will happen so they'll get money, 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 more quarters, more quarters. And I wanted to go up to some of them and say, man, you are 100 yards away from Niagara Falls. One of the wonders of the world, you're 100 yards away from it. Before human technology and, and human noise came to Niagara Falls, you could hear the water falling over the falls 15 miles away. You are a hundred yards away from that site, and you're here hoping for quarters. Wake up, wake up, go outside and look. And Jesus holds up a mirror to this man and shows him his own condition look where you are, look what you love, look what you value. Wake up, wake up. Matthew records this for us to warn us, any sleeping followers of Jesus, wake up. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning, and we do thank you for your great kindness to us through the Lord Jesus, he who is our Savior and our coming Lord. Father, we are thankful to you for this passage of Scripture. We confess to you that we are sometimes distracted. Uh, We confess to you that we are often distracted by the temporary things of this world, We are not immune from the allurements of temporary things, the glitter. So we come to you in a condition of need, asking you for help. Father, as the Apostle Paul prayed for the Ephesians, I pray that you would enlighten us, that you would open our eyes so that we would come to understand in a more significant way the hope that you have called us to that we would not set our hopes and dreams here in this life, but in the life to come. That we would not seek to accumulate for ourselves treasures on earth, but treasures in heaven where moth and rust uh, don't uh, corrupt and uh, thieves don't break in and steal. Lord, we confess we are prone to being tempted and we are prone to forgetfulness. Remind us, Lord, of your great lavish generosity and move us forward with it, releasing the shame that we sometimes feel and exalting in the goodness that is ours through the Lord Jesus. Help us, we pray, asking these together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, amen.